Uh, there we go. All right, that fixed it. Uh, just remind you a couple of very, very important things that are coming up. Please sit up and take note of these things that are coming up. First of all, if you are going to be helping us put on the Vacation Bible School Neighborhood Bible Time, uh, this there's a very important Saturday training meeting with uh, Evangelist Larry Kuntz, who will be helping us run it, uh, run the uh, Vacation Bible School. That training is going to take place this coming up Saturday at six. PM, 6 p.m. So if you're helping in either the morning with the children or the evening with the teenagers, do everything you can, please, to make that meeting, and so that uh, you can we can all be on the same page uh, come uh, come uh, the following week, week with the uh, the vacation Bible school. And then also this one's for the whole church family. This is a very important meeting as well. We're going to do something a little different. Um, the whole week will be different from what we've done in the past, but this one uh, will will affect uh, or could possibly affect you. We're going to have a special service, and we're going to close the week of VBS next Friday evening at 7 p.m. right here in this room, right here in the auditorium. And uh, there's a number of reasons why we're doing this. The kids are going to work hard and, and learn a lot of memory verses. They're going to uh, earn uh, ribbons and, and whatnot. And, and there's going to be an award ceremony where we give them uh, some different prizes and things that they've earned, depending on the grade and how hard they've worked. And so you'll want to be here for that, but also there's going to be an opportunity to meet a lot of new families that no doubt uh, Vacation Bible School is going to reach. And so uh, I I would encourage the church family to come. If you're a Sunday school teacher, I would encourage you to be here and try to recruit for your Sunday school class. Amen. Uh, If you're just a regular church attendee, uh, come and and just be warm and friendly. And let's show the community that shows up that evening uh, what White Oak Baptist Church really is all about. And so be here if you can. Mark your calendars and make every effort to be out Friday uh, evening at uh, 7 p.m. And I know that will be a blessing. If you have children that will be involved in the Vacation Bible School, Neighborhood Bible Time, you'll want to be here anyway because uh, your children will be honored uh, uh, that night. And that will conclude that service. So make note of those two things. The Saturday training meeting at 6 p.m., and then the Friday uh, awards ceremony, this would be the following Friday out at uh, a week from this Friday, and that would be at 7 p.m. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, 1 Kings chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 54 down through verse number 57. We'll read the, uh, the odd verses uh, together, I'll read the even verses alone. The Bible says in verse 54, And it was so that when Solomon had made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication of the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Verse 55, together. And he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel, according to all that he promised. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers, let him not leave us nor forsake us. And this morning we're going to look at this prayer of Solomon and his dedication to the temple. And we're going to preach a sermon entitled this God's Amazing Faithfulness. God's Amazing Faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come this morning and brag on you. And Lord, brag on your impeccable faithfulness. And how it um, never misses. How it has a perfect record and will continue to have a perfect record. Lord, we're thankful that you're a God who is the same yesterday. You're the same today and you'll be the same forever. And Lord, we 
want to lift that up. Lord, as we hold high your faithfulness, no doubt we will see uh, inconsistencies in our own as we all have them. Lord, would you make those evident to us, and Lord, would you help us to work to become more like you in this area. And God, help us to see some amazing truths from your scriptures today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This uh, account we just read here in 1 Kings 8 is, uh, comes right on the heels of Solomon praying a very lengthy prayer. We're going to be looking at that prayer in, uh, in great detail this, uh, this morning. But Solomon had just finished building the temple. In our culture and day and time, what would you do if you just got through building a great big building? You would have a ribbon-cutting ceremony. There would be all kinds of festivities. Well, there wasn't necessarily a ribbon-cutting that we know of, but Solomon did honor God and pray a very long, elaborate and a prayer, and a prayer that pleased God, a prayer that honored God. And at the end of that prayer, they had a very long time of sacrificing animals to break in all the altars that were, or really the altar that was there, and the big altar that was even inside the temple. Solomon had done this, but back up the story to when Solomon had just become king. His father David, King David, had ruled in Hebron for seven years, and then Jerusalem them for 33 years, a total of 40 years, and his final request as he was dying, his final, his, his, his final words were to have Solomon, his son, uh, come in and be the next king of Israel. Funny uh, enough, Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. Many don't know that, but was was Bathsheba, showing that God can show grace in a tough situation. And while Bathsheba uh, was the woman who David had had an affair with and later married, God had forgiven David and allowed uh, their son uh, through uh, it, born within wedlock to be the next king. Solomon was made king. Solomon stepped into the palace, stepped into the position of being the king, and immediately felt very intimidated. I imagine uh, uh, Solomon sitting there and some very difficult requests being brought to him, and Solomon not knowing where to go and what to do with it, and maybe uh, asking for some time to pray about things and think about things. And he makes his way out of the city and to a place of, of, of quietness, a place of privacy, and a place of prayer and worship. And there Solomon gets down on his face and he has a long time of prayer with God. He sacrifices many animals in an attempt to get his heart right and himself in line with God. And in that prayer, God comes to Solomon and asks Solomon, Solomon, a very unusual request. He says to Solomon, ask me one thing. If you'll ask me one thing, I will grant it. Now, the way I've always heard this taught is it was like God was being a genie in a bottle. And in some senses, that is true. God was saying to Solomon, you ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Now, God has never come to me and asked me that. He's never asked me that, but he did ask Solomon that. And uh, this week in in preparing the sermon, uh, I realized some things as far as why God asked Solomon that. And I think if you take this temple build in 1 Kings and you look at uh, Solomon, uh, where he was before that temple build, you really begin to see the puzzle coming together as why God asked Solomon that question. What did Solomon say? Well, let me just say that uh, God saw Solomon's need. God's timing is always perfect. And God knew what Solomon would say. 
I wonder if maybe those problems that faced Solomon that drove him out of the temple, or rather drove him out of the palace and to this place, God did not allow those problems so that Solomon would feel the way he felt and be forced to this place. You see, the Bible tells us if we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. And God had put a desire for a need of wisdom deep down in the heart of Solomon. And here Solomon was uh, uh, in a place where he needed God's wisdom more than anything else in the world. And at that moment, God comes to him and says, Solomon, ask me one thing and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, I would just like you to give me a discerning heart. He said, I don't even know how to go in or come out of my own palace. I don't know anything about what I'm doing. Would you give me a discerning heart? And God said, listen, Solomon, I will give you wisdom. But because you have done a good thing by asking for wisdom, I'm going to give you more than wisdom. I'm going to give you peace your entire reign. You're not going to see war of any sorts your entire reign. He said, I'm going to give you loads and loads of money. And let me tell you, boy, did God pour on the money. Some people have estimated Solomon and his greatest wealth to have been worth $30 trillion. 30 with a T, trillion dollars. Worth a whole lot of money. And God gave him also a conditional promise. God said, Solomon, if you can seek me with your whole heart and you cannot, you'll not chase idols, I will give you a long, long life. Now, why would God grant these things to Solomon? You stop and think about what God was going to have Solomon do and what God had promised David with the building of the temple. What would Solomon need? Solomon would need peace in his country in order to be able to build that temple. If he was constantly sending soldiers out to war, then Solomon would have been labeled as a bloody man, just like David was labeled as a bloody man. And David couldn't build the temple because David had much bloodshed that he was responsible for as well as Solomon reached into these many countries and used resources from them in order to build the temple. Solomon had to have peace on every front. And so God gave him that promise. Why? So that Solomon could build the temple. How about money? What did Solomon need money for? Oh my goodness, if you study the building of the temple, how that everything was the finest. Uh, They used the cedars of Lebanon, which was the most expensive wood of that day. Uh, They they gold-plated everything. Everything was gold-plated. And when they finished building this temple, I have no idea what the value of a building like that would be today, but it would far exceed the finest hotel anywhere in the world. Far exceed. This temple was a sight to behold. This temple was something that people came from far and near to see. Uh, People traveled from all over the world to see it. If it existed today, it would be one of uh, of, of the wonders of the world. There's no doubt. Why did God give Solomon so much money so that Solomon could build God's temple. God gave Solomon wisdom for the very same reason. God gave these things to Solomon for a very specific purpose so that God could prove his faithfulness to his father David. God had told David, you're going, you're not going to be able to build the temple. And, uh, and I'm going to allow that to happen through someone else. More about that in just a minute. As we're getting ready to talk about God's faithfulness this morning, and before we 
jump into the outline, let me just share with you a couple of thoughts by way of introduction about God's faithfulness. First of all, God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to Him. You understand that God does not look at your Christian record and say, well, you know what, He's been doing pretty good lately, so I think I'm going to come through and just pour blessings down on Him. It's not how it works. God doesn't say, well, you know what, you've been behaving a little bit better, so I think I'm going to pay a little more attention to your prayer. It's not how God works. God is faithful because it's who He is. God doesn't love you more when you behave and love you less when you misbehave. God's love is faithful. It's perfect. It's impeccable. Now, if you get on God's bad side, He shows you His love in a different way. But nonetheless, God still loves you just the same. God is faithful to us even when we're not faithful to Him. Have you ever, ever, ever doubted God? We all have, haven't we? At some point, on some level, in some way. Some of us have been saved for many, many years, but we get ourselves in a bad spot, or we feel ourselves being squeezed or pinched by whatever it may be, and we're not careful. Seeds of doubt can begin to get planted in our heart, or can begin to manifest themselves in our heart. But you know, while sometimes we may doubt God's faithfulness, God never doubts us. He still loves us. He still knows who we are. He knows that we're dust. And He knows the outcome of our lives. And God remains faithful. He remains faithful. The other one thing I wanted to say this morning by way of introduction is that God's faithfulness is flawless. It's flawless. It's perfect. You go back to the beginning of time and you go to the end of time and there will never be a time where God ceases to be faithful. He will be faithful in every situation, in every way. This morning I propose that many Christians struggle with faith in God because they do not adequately understand the faithfulness of God. We struggle with faith in God because we don't fully comprehend, we don't fully understand the faithfulness of God. The better we understand the faithfulness of God, His faithfulness, the more confidence we have that He has our best in mind no matter the circumstances. God always is looking out for your best. Let's dive in to Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple and, and let's observe five characteristics of the faithfulness of our amazing God. Uh, 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 observation number one this morning, His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. Look down with me verse number 24 there at 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to get uh, jump right into the prayer here. The Bible says, and this is Solomon praying, Who hast kept with thy servant David my father that thou promised promisedest him, thou spakest also with thy mouth, and hast fulfilled it with thine hand, as it is this day. Uh, hold your place in 1 Kings 8, flip back over to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Just should be one book to the left there. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God always, always, always comes through on His promises. Always. You say, well, one time I prayed for this and God didn't give it to me. Well, there's a reason for that. I promise there's a reason for that. Let me say this. God is not obligated uh, to give you what you ask Him for. Uh, it, God isn't a gumball machine. You put a quarter in, you turn the dial, and you get the gumball. That's not how God works. 
God has the ability to tell you, no. God has the ability to say, not right now. Just because you asked God for something, He didn't give it right to you, that doesn't mean anything. But can I tell you something? If it says in this book He's going to give it to you, He's going to give it to you. If it says in this book uh, that if you do this, you get this, we call those conditional promises, then guess what? If you do it, then He's going to do His part every single time. Look back with me in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and verse 12. The Bible says here, this is uh, God speaking through Nathan to David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. What did God tell David here? David wanted to build the temple. And, uh, and he asked God, please let me build a temple for you. And God uh, uh, sent Nathan to David. And Nathan was uh, God's man, and Nathan had a good relationship with David. And God sent Nathan to David. And Nathan basically uh, said to David uh, from God, and he said, listen, you cannot build this temple. Your hands are bloody. You have killed people, and I don't want bloody hands being responsible for building my temple. He said, but I will make you this promise. I will allow your son to have peace on every side and I will allow your son to build my temple and I will establish your throne forever because of the strength of your son. And you say, well, uh, has that promise been broken because there is no uh, uh, rule of David currently in Jerusalem. And I'd say, no, it is still established because the son of David, Jesus, is still the king of Israel. One day he's going to sit on a throne in Israel and directly rule. Right now he rules from up high where he can't be seen. But trust me, Netanyahu is not the leader of Israel. God, King Jesus, is the leader of Israel. Here we see that God promised David something, and guess what? Solomon turns around and prays, then in the next book he says, God, you have kept your promise. It's recorded in Scripture over and over and over again. In the book of Genesis, we get the account of creation. Day one, God created the day and night. Day two, He, he created the heavens or separated the firmament. Day three, He uh, created the grass, herbs, and the trees. And day four, He created the sun, moon, and the stars. Day five, He created winged and water, water creatures. And day six, He created the beasts of the earth and He created man. And day seven, God rested. Now, uh, why do I bring up the Seven days of creation, because as you look at our world today, you know what you find is that God's faithful. God's faithful. You know why the sun comes up and goes down? Because God is faithful. You know, each of those things that I quickly read through that God created, do you understand that there is a very complex system that makes each one of those things work? You know who keeps them working? God. God's faithfulness. You know that if you get a molecule of water, it is always going to be composed of two-part hydrogen, one-part oxygen. Always. You know why? Because God's faithful. You know, the, the, the moon rotates around the earth, creating a, uh, a tides in the morning and the evening. And you know what? Those tides are always there in the morning and the evening. You know why? Because God is faithful. 
God is faithful. You know why your heart beats inside your chest and you know why life is born? You know why your eyeballs work and your hands work? Do you know why uh, that human life continues to exist? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And this is preserved in Scripture. It's given to us in Scripture and it is played out in front of us every single day. Every single day. We have a God who is faithful. And this truth is not just something that I'm, uh, some preacher gets up and exclaims uh, half-heartedly or willy-nilly. No, this is founded in the pages of the Bible. Over and over and over again, God says, this is going to happen, and then it turns around and happens. I think of the, uh, the uh, illustration that was used in a Wednesday evening Bible study here recently, how King Cyrus uh, allowed the children of Israel to leave uh, the Persian Empire after Persia took over Babylon and go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and how that Isaiah had called out uh, King, uh, King Cyrus by name several hundred years before he would even be born. Isaiah would say, Cyrus, you are to let my people go and you are to let them rebuild their temple. And this was proclaimed hundreds of years before Cyrus would even be born. God called Cyrus out by name before he'd even be born. Why? Because God is faithful and it is preserved in Scripture. But I hasten, number one, we look at this fact, His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. Number two, we see His faithfulness punishes the iniquitous. It punishes the iniquitous. Turn back over to 1 Kings chapter 8. Look with me down at verse number 33. The Bible says, notice that first word there. Everybody there? You notice that first word? What is it? When. What is it? When. When thy people Israel be smitten down. Not if thy people Israel be smitten down. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy. Now, why would they be smitten down because of the enemy? It explains, because they have sinned against thee and shall turn again to thee and confess thy name and pray and make supplication unto thee in this house. Now, have you ever gone to the doctor's office and gotten a physical? How many of you have ever had a physical in your life? Would you raise your hand? That should be all of us. If you haven't, go to the doctor and go to the physical. Amen. Uh, but uh, you ever sit? You sit there on the edge of that that goofy looking bed that they they have there in every doctor's office, and they take that hammer and they hit you in the knee. And if you're normal, what happens? You kick the doctor in the shin, right? That's what happens. You, you that leg comes swinging out. If it's a rookie doctor, maybe he stands right in front of you. If he's been kicked a couple times, he knows to stand off to the side as he's ha- hammering your your knee there. We call that a Reflex. You know what a reflex is? It's automatic. It's automatic. How many of you have a reflex when someone scares you? How many of that, how many of that reflex is violent? <laughs> a couple of hands there. Uh, how many is just to scream and to jump, right? Someone scares you right out of your skin. God has a reflex that is faithful when we keep sinning. You know what it is? It's to punish the iniquitous. It's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. Now, it is great. It is a whole lot of fun to talk about God's faithfulness when it comes to nature and how things work in perfect order. It's a whole lot of fun to talk about God's faithfulness when it comes to Him pouring down His blessings on us. It's a whole lot of fun to talk about God's faithfulness when it comes to His protecting of us. But it's a whole other ball game when it comes to His punishing hand. Isn't it? 
We don't want to talk about His faithfulness then. We don't want to talk about His consistency when it comes to us acting out of line and God pouring down the punishment. But guess what? God is faithful in punishing us. Earlier I stated the fact that God is always love regardless of how we behave. Sometimes we see His love in different forms. And you know what? When God is punishing you, He's doing it because He loves you. He loves you. What does Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 say? It says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of His correction, for whom the Lord loveth, He correcteth, even as the Father, the Son in whom He delighteth. Now, uh, we've been talking about this in my Sunday school class, but uh, with the parents, and we've been telling the parents, any time you punish your children, it ought to always be done with a spirit of love. It ought to never be done out of hatred or frustration. It ever ought, not, ought to never even be uh, perceived as hatred and frustration. God is the perfect punisher. He's the perfect chastener. And God always chastens in love. He's faithful with that. He's faithful with that. Here, uh, King Solomon is praying in a time of peace. He's got all of the, the important people of Israel gathered around him. In fact, all of Israel, most of Israel has gathered in Jerusalem for the dedication of this temple. And Solomon, the leader of Israel, he prays and he doesn't say if we sin, he says when we sin and when we be smitten down. Why? Because God, uh, 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 because Solomon had God's record recorded. Solomon knew the past. He knew uh, uh, how uh, things had worked. He remembered how the stories of the children of Israel, how they had been marching through the desert. And what did they do? They complained. And what did God do? God punished them. How did God punish them? Well, once He sent a fire through and consumed them. Another time He opened up a whole big pit in the ground and He swallowed Korah and all of His followers. Remember uh, our theme here this year, lift him up. Uh, we, we've been talking about this. Where does that whole lift him up come from? Well, it comes from the Israelites complaining and being smitten by their sin, doesn't it? Fiery serpents crawling through and striking them. And what did Moses have to do? He had to put a serpent on a rod and lift that up so everyone could look and live. Look and live. And, and so uh, Solomon has God's faithful past. Solomon deducts every single time that we have sinned, God has corporately punished us. And we are a sinful people. My friend, can I, can I assure you something today? You're going to sin and God's going to punish you. It just is. Now, you say, Pastor, how does God punish me? Does, he, does a hand come out of heaven with a paddle in it and whack, 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 whack? I really sometimes wish it worked that way. I wish it was um, that simple. I wish it was that quick, over, and, and done with. Assuming that he didn't spank me so hard, he, 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 he hit me all the way to China, amen? Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I would love it to be that quick and simple and over with, but God's, God has many different methods of punishing His children. And, and, and my list here is not all-inclusive. I'm sure if we brainstormed, we could come up with many others. But I did jot down three different methods God uses to punish the iniquitous. The first one I wrote down was sin's consequences. Sometimes God just backs up and says, okay, if those are the choices you want to make, then I'm just going to let the natural fallout take place. And I'm not going to stop it. I'm not going to stop it. You want to smoke cigarettes? I'm not going to stop you from getting lung cancer. You want to drink and drink and drink and drink? I'm not going to get in the way of all of the relational strife it's going to cause, and I'm not going to get in the way of cirrhosis of the liver. 
You 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 want to you want to uh, 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 lose your temper and blow your stack at work to your boss? I'm not going to step in and stop you from losing your job. I'm just not. Sometimes God just allows the natural consequences of our sin to 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 have its course. That's how God punishes us. The second way I wrote down uh, that God punishes us is the rebuke of others. Rebuke of others. And I immediately think of David. How Nathan came to him after his sin. And the man of God stuck his bony finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man! You ever had someone approach you for your sin and say, Hey, what you're doing is not right. You ever think about maybe God allowed that person to come to you? Now, look, I don't want a church full of people that run around sticking their fingers in each other's face. Okay, Go look in the mirror first. Get the beam out of your own ivory. Go picking the motive out of anyone's else. The truth is, there may be times where I'm preaching the Bible, or a Sunday school teacher is teaching the Bible, and a verse is read and explained, and God, wham, He uses the, the deliverance of the, of the Bible to put a proverbial finger in your face and say, you are living in sin. Sometimes God uses others to rebuke us. I think of Matthew 18, where if a brother is caught in sin, or you know of a deep sin a brother's in, how you're to go to them in private and, 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 and help them with that. It is always to be done in a spirit of meekness and humility, but sometimes God uses others. The third thing I wrote down here as far as God's method is direct intervention. Direct intervention. And I know I've shared this story with you before. I thought long and hard about a time where I remembered God stepping in and directly punishing me. <laughs> and I, I couldn't think of very many. And, and I know that if I thought long and hard, I could probably come up with several dozen, but nothing immediately came to mind except one example. And I believe I've shared this here sometime in the last year, but it fits here really well, so I'm going to share it again. Uh, when I was a Bible college student, money was tight, and uh, I was forced uh, with a decision of, do I take my paycheck and pay my school bill so I'm not financially withdrawn from classes, or, or, or do I tithe? Now, what should have I done? I should have tithed. You know what I didn't do? I didn't tithe. I took that money and I went down to the financial office and I paid my school bill. And it was in the total of like 156 bucks and change. I, I can't remember the exact amount. It was somewhere in that neighborhood. And, um, and I was feeling terrible about it. I was just feeling so guilty over it. I didn't get financially withdrawn, but, you know, just miserable. Miserable. And that Sunday night after church, I climbed on my car. And I was riding home uh, from church. And I was going down a road that I went down every Sunday night. And, and there are a hundred ways to get from that church over to the college. But uh, I, I had my, my method, my path. And, and I was going down and I was going the same speed I always go, which was maybe seven or eight over the speed limit. Maybe a little more. I don't really remember. But I was speeding nonetheless. But I had sped down this road for years. You know, you get roads you know you can speed on and the police just aren't there. This was one of those roads. That particular day, there was an officer hiding behind a building. The next thing I know, I'm getting pulled over and I'm getting written a ticket. And at the bottom of the ticket, the amount is the exact to the dollar that I owed in my tithe. I call that divine intervention. God was saying... You need to tithe. You need to tithe. If you're not going to give me your money, I will take your money. God is faithful in punishing the iniquitous. You may be here today and you may be under the punishing hand of God. Let me just tell you this this morning. 
Don't shake your fist at God and say, it's not fair, stop punishing me. What you need to do is humble your heart. And that brings us to the third observation of God's faithfulness. We've looked at how that His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. His faithfulness punishes the iniquitous. Number three, notice His faithfulness pardons the repentant. It pardons the repentant. God doesn't punish the iniquitous because He hates them. God punishes the iniquitous because He hates the sin inside of them. God doesn't hate you, my friend. When my children do wrong and I'm forced to punish them, I'm not punishing them because I hate them. I love my children. In fact, I'm punishing them because I hate the character flaw inside of them. I hate the sin inside of them. I'm trying to drive it far from them. With God, it's no different. God looks down at each of us and He sees character flaws. He sees areas where we're not quite like His Son the way He wants us to be. And sometimes He comes down and He directly punishes us or He allows sin to run its course or He'll use the rebuke of someone else. And what's God trying to do? He's trying to separate the sin from our heart. When we come around and we are repentant, and that's a key word, we're repentant over that sin, God pardons us. Look down at verse 34 of 1 Kings chapter 8. Now verse 33, we looked at how that God will punish. Verse 34, Solomon says, Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. So, uh, the verse 33 explains that when we sin, we know you're going to carry us away from this land. Verse 34, when we confess, bring us back. Allow us to come back. Restore us to our land. Solomon again can look back at the history of the children of Israel as they cross through the wilderness and he can see the faithful hand of God. You may remember before Solomon how the people were leaving Israel and in the, in the desert there and Moses goes up in the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and the people, uh, after several days of Moses being gone, what do they do? They come to Aaron and they say, uh, Moses, we don't know what happened to that guy. He's gone. Here are all of our gold. Make for us a God to worship. And what does he build them? He builds them a golden calf. By the way, Aaron's lie might be the most hilarious in the whole Bible. I threw the gold in and this just came out. Yeah, okay, Aaron. Why don't you back up and try that again, right? Um, <laughs> I get tickled when I think about that. Um, they're down there worshiping that calf. Uh, they, their music was, uh, was the sound of war, the Bible tells us there. and They're dancing around with little to nothing on. Sounds like today's society and culture. Moses comes down off the mountain, he takes the Ten Commandments and he, he smashes them out of his anger. By the way, I don't believe that anger was righteous. I believe that uh, he was trying to step in God's place and be angry for God. God is sufficient enough in his anger. He doesn't need us to try to step in that, his role and do that. Well, the next thing uh, Moses did was he took the golden calf and he grounded it down into powder and he put it in water and he made them drink the golden calf. In the form of powder. You know what the people did is they confessed their sin. You know what God did? He forgave them. He forgave them. 
I mentioned earlier the fiery serpents, how they slithered through. You know what? Moses walked through the people with that golden, uh, with that snake on that, uh, on that pole, that brass pole. And as he passed by, people looking up at the pole, what they were saying with their heart was, I am sorry for what I have done. I will repent of my sin. And when they looked, they were healed. Why? Because God always pardons the repentant. I think sometimes the, the verse in 1 John is abused a little bit. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. You know, it, it is a little bit more than just confession. Now, confession by the way that we mean confession, not by the biblical idea of confession. You see, it's not enough to get down on your knees and and state your sin to God and ask for Him to forgive you with no intent or no action of real change. That's not true confession. That is simply saying, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Please forgive me. I think God can look past your words, my friend, and He can look down into the heart and He can see if you have actually have any intent of changing and how much you actually hate your sin. God is not going to forgive you if you are not truly sorry over your sin. Just not. God, I, I feel like maybe God in heaven steps back and says, you want to try that again? You want to try that again? Sir, you got an issue with this struggle. you got, you got an issue with cigarettes. And you confess your sin of smoking, but you don't throw the pack of cigarettes away. Now, wait a minute. You're leaving the possibility to fall right back in that sin again. Are you really serious about confessing it? You, uh, you, you have a secret account that your spouse knows nothing about. And you get down on your knees and you confess the sin, but you never shut down the account. You never, de- you never delete access or, or end the access to that. And God's sitting there going, you're not really repentant. God needs to see that repentant heart. Let me build on that thought here this, this morning. Is that, uh, uh, be very careful about leading when you lead someone to the Lord. Listen, it, it, it is more than just someone praying a prayer to get saved. There is a doctrine of repentance that I think by and large gets ignored when it comes to salvation. And I think that a lot of people, they feel no remorse or regret over their own sin, and yet they bow their head and they go through the motions of praying some prayer without ever really realizing and sensing just what their sin did to a holy God on the cross. And my friend, if you're not repentant over the sin, there's not some sense of feeling sorry over what you've done. God is not going to call you to repentance. You say, Pastor, can you prove that with Scripture? I sure can. The Bible says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. And if there's no sorrow over the sin, there's not true repentance there. Just because someone bows their head and goes through emotions of praying the sinner's prayer, if they're not truly repentant over what they've done, I'm sorry, my friend, I have a hard time believing that that person's been saved. And I will also add there, I can't look in someone's heart and know if they're sorry for it. And I'm not looking for a tear in the eye. I'm not looking for some emotional status on the face. I can't look down in their heart. Only God can. But my friend, be make sure you're very clear with them just what sin does. 
My friend, God would be faithful to Israel. Here in 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays, if we, if we forsake, if we forsake, will you forgive? Look down at verse 35. It says there, when heaven is shut up, and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee. If they prayed toward this place and confess thy name and turn from their sin when thou afflictest them, then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sins of thy servant and of thy people Israel that thou teach them the good way wherein they shall walk and give rain unto thy land when thou hast uh, given to the people for an inheritance. Now I've often wondered if, if Elijah did not have access to this prayer. Because Elijah walked in to Ahab and he said, because of your sin, it's not going to rain. Guess what? It didn't rain for three and a half years. You know how we see God's faithfulness in this passage is that when, when, uh, when the people were repentant, you say, how do we know the people were repentant? Well, Elijah stood before the people on Mount Carmel and he said, hey, you guys have to make a choice. How long, he said, halt ye between two opinions? How long are you going to ride the fence on Baal or God? Choose. You know what that happened that day is the people surrounded the prophets and one by one held them down while they were eliminated by Elijah. You know what the people did that day? They repented. And you know what came was rain. You know why? Because God's faithful. He's faithful. When we confess, when we repent... God forgives. Now, I don't see any unfamiliar faces in the crowd today, but let me just make sure I get this point across loud and clear. This would be for anyone who listens to this on the Internet. This may even be for someone who's sitting here and been playing a game for many, many years. Let me just be clear on this, is that you cannot be saved today unless you realize that your sin has separated you from a holy God. Your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. When you realize the gravity of what you've done and what it's caused, and you accept the grace that was showed there on that cross, that tree where Jesus died. You realize that God in flesh, God incarnate, became your sin so that you could become His righteousness. And you are willing to bow your head and confess that sin. God will give you, God will give you salvation. God's faithfulness. God is faithful to pardon. I am thankful that every time I feel regret over my sin and I bow my head and I pray, every time that I have truly repented over my sin, God every time has, has forgiven me. Why? Because He's faithful. He's faithful. Number one, we see His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. It is It punishes the iniquitous. It pardons the repentant. Number four, notice that His faithfulness provides salvation to the stranger. I love, love, love this point here. Look down at uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 41. The Bible says there, Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy namesake. For they shall hear of thy great name, and of thy strong hand, and of thy stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house... Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all the stranger calleth thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. It's amazing how that, uh, that God was not inclusive for 
or rather exclusive for the Israelites, but He was all-inclusive for everyone. Strangers could come in to Jerusalem and come into the temple and seek out uh, Judaism of that day and, and could convert into Judaism. Everyone was welcome. Everyone was welcome. We looked at the book of Esther on Wednesday nights a couple weeks ago, and in the end of the book, uh, the Bible says that many became Jews. What's that mean? That means they were converted. They were converted. You didn't have to be born into the Jewish bloodline to be saved. You could be converted from the outside. You say, oh, pastor, you can't prove that. Oh, my goodness, is there ample evidence in the Bible for that? You remember Rahab? Rahab living on the wall? The Bible labels her as a prostitute, a harlot. She began to feel remorse over her sin, and she asked God for a pardon, asked the people of Israel for a pardon. Rahab is in the lineage of Christ. How about Ruth? Ruth would end up marrying the grandson of Rahab, Boaz. Ruth was a Moabitess girl, married either Malon or Chilion. One of, uh, her husband died, and Back to Israel she came, and you read the story of Ruth, she ends up marrying Boaz, a non-Jew being accepted into the fold. Fast forward to the New Testament, you see that God is faithful in the Old Testament to save those that come to Him, and He's faithful to do so in the New Testament. You remember the story of Cornelius in the book of Acts. How that he was from Italy and he was a religious man, a devout man seeking God and God sent Peter to him so that he could be saved. How about the Ethiopian eunuch? The Ethiopian eunuch comes to the temple. Now not the same temple, but nonetheless comes to the temple and this prayer of Solomon, hey, if a stranger from a faraway place comes into this temple because they heard of your great name, grant their request. What did God do? He sent Philip out of the way to the desert so that this man's request for salvation could be granted. Why? Because God is faithful. You know, today God is still providing salvation to strangers. He's still doing it. Every week, people are saved because of the ministries of White Oak Baptist Church. Every single week. In fact, if there is a week on the calendar year that goes by where someone is not having their eternal destination changed, I would be shocked. Between our nursing home ministry and our addictions deliverance ministry, our Tuesday evening visitation program, our Saturday morning soul winning efforts, and uh, all the soul winning that goes on, the pastors go out on uh, uh, every Wednesday for an hour to an hour and a half or so, and we go soul winning, and uh, there is constantly church members who are taking tracts and distributing them and witnessing. Uh, the church body of White Oak Baptist Church every week is taking out the gospel, and you know what God's doing? He is saving strangers. Why do Baptist Church, don't ever let that get tired. Don't ever grow weary of hearing that. Someone's eternal destination has been changed from hell to heaven. Uh, the angels, there is rejoicing in the presence of those angels in heaven every time a lost soul is saved. I think back to all the years this church has had a vacation Bible school. At this point, the hundreds of children that have poured into this church have been taken aside by a worker and showed the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and those children who have been saved. I'm just asked this this morning. How many of you were saved at a vacation Bible school? Would you raise your hand if you were saved at a vacation Bible school? Is there anybody here that way today? 
Not one. Okay, I hear many, 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 many people will say I was saved at Vacation Bible School. I think of this coming up Vacation Bible School that will kick off a week from today in the evening with the teens and then a week from tomorrow with the children. The dozens of kids that will most likely be saved because God is still in the soul-saving business. I think of a lady named Anna. This week I got a text from uh, one of our white church members. You say, are you being racist, Pastor? No, she didn't speak Spanish. <laughs> and she had met a, uh, a lady who was uh, Spanish-speaking, and the lady was seeking uh, for help with employment, and uh, the uh, church member just was not able to help her with that. And so she gave me the lady's name and phone number, and I was able to call her this past Wednesday because of a, a faithful witness of a church member who was burdened over her soul. And I spent about 45 minutes on the phone with Anna this past Wednesday, and Anna bowed her head uh, with me on the phone and she prayed and repented of her sin and asked Christ to save her. It's not about me. I'm just the, I'm just the messenger taking the good news. I think of Pastor Dave who this week uh, was uh, going to, he went over to Bella Nepali's in, um, in Stratford and was ordering some, some pizza for uh, our children to eat uh, during the mystery date night. And as he's getting back in the car, um, he was actually driving my car because uh, he, only, he needed a vehicle to get around and I didn't need it, so I let him use my car. And, and uh, the person next to him said, hey, can you give me a jump? My battery's dead. And he said, I don't even know. I don't know if my pastor's got battery cables in his trunk or not. And sure enough, I did. And he gave the person a physical jump, and then he gave him a spiritual jump. That person bowed their head a few minutes later and got saved. God is still in the soul-saving business. And I just have to say this morning is that He's faithful. You know, there isn't one sinner that comes to Him repenting that God turns away. Not one. He saves them all. Saves them all. Looking at God's faithfulness this morning. His faithfulness is preserved in Scripture. Number two, His faithfulness punishes the iniquitous. His faithfulness pardons the repentant. Number four, His faithfulness provides salvation to strangers. Number five, and quickly we see His faithfulness is plenteous in restoration. It's plenteous in restoration. Look down with me at 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 46. We're going to read down through verse 50. The Bible says, If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not. And thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives, unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land, whether they were carried captives, and repent, and make supplication to thee in the land of them, to carry them captives, saying, We have sinned, and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness. And so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray unto thee toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou that their prayer and their supplication to heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause and forgive thy people that have sinned against thee. And all thy transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee. And give them compassion before them who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. Clearly we know that these, this prayer was very prophetic of a faithful God. The Israelites would sin and they would sin and they would sin and they would sin. Finally God would have enough of it and he would allow the northern kingdom to be carried away by the Assyrians. There was never any repentance by those Israelites, so they stayed in captivity. 
The southern kingdom was carried away by the Babylonians and after 70 years of captivity, they truly sought God's face. I love how there it says they prayed toward their kingdom. What did Daniel do? Which direction was he praying when, when they came and had him thrown in the lion's den? He's praying toward Jerusalem. You know what David was doing? He was leading the Israelites to obey exactly the request of Solomon. You know what God did? He faithfully restored him. He faithfully restored him. God always provides restoration to those that are seeking a second chance. This morning, I just have to say, I am so thankful that God is a God of second chances. I'm so thankful for that. You know, God doesn't just hand out second chances to anybody. He hands them to those who seek Him with their whole heart. You might be here today and you might feel like you're under the punishing hand of God for something in your life. I'm not here to berate you or belittle you, my friend. I'm here to tell you that if you'll seek God with your whole heart, He will restore you. He will restore you. Don't run from God. Don't run from Him. Listen, I would rather enjoy the pardon of God's faithfulness than the punishment of God's faithfulness. God is going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful. We get to choose which part of His faithfulness we get. My friend, today the challenge is simple. Let's focus on the faithfulness of God. Let's work on being more faithful ourselves as we serve Him. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I mean, this morning, say, Pastor Lejeune, I know beyond all shadow of a doubt that when I die, because of God's promises and His faithfulness, I know He's going to take me to heaven. I know exactly in the Bible how it explains this, and I know when I die, I've put my faith and trust in Him, and His faithfulness is going to put me in His heaven. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. 